I just finished the book, Deep Finance, Corporate Finance for the Information Age. The author is Glenn Hopper, and this very likable expert helps the rest of us better understand AI, computer science, and ERP solutions. The book is readable. I love his stories. And plus, Glenn is a CFO, so he's practiced what he teaches in this book. And I left our interview wanting more. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our conversation with Glenn Hopper is coming up next. Glenn Hopper has a super, super cool factor from journalism to marketing to CFO. I absolutely love it. I'll first say I I hear all the time that that's really a strange transition to go from journalist to CFO. But I think that there are a lot of people who can crunch numbers all day. It's just like good developers. There's a lot of people who can code all day. There's people, engineers that are very good at what they do. But if you can't communicate it to a wider audience, then you know, you're kind of limited. You're in a very uh, narrow lane. Well, I think, you know, maybe I'm not the <laughs> maybe I'm not the best finance guy in the world, but I think that that background as a journalist and the ability to explain something, whether it's, you know, amortization or whatever to anybody, you know, from an investor to a board of directors to a frontline employee. Uh, when I worked in retail years ago, I would have, you know, high school educated kids that were responsible for PLs for their units. And I would go review PLs with them. And after a couple of months, they would be, uh, you know, you'd, you'd think you were talking to a private equity guy or something. And it's, and it's because, uh, you know, being able to communicate that, uh, numbers or whatever it is to a a broad audience really is helpful in the role. So that's, I jumped the gun a little bit and explained uh, how it's benefited me. The, The move from journalist to finance guy was, there was an interim step in between, and maybe this will make a little more sense. So I started out as a journalist in the Navy, actually, which they don't even have the job anymore. But back, you know, I was basically a PR and doing, uh, you know, feel good stories uh, in the Navy. I had a monthly news magazine where we did feature pieces and all that. And I thought I was going to keep being a journalist. And then I got married and then I realized uh, you might need to do something where you can make a little bit more money than than you could as a journalist. So ended up uh, ended up going to, to business school instead. But um it seemed like coming out of business school with a journalism background and doing some PR, it seemed like, well, marketing's probably the place to go. So my first job out of business school was in marketing and I got in marketing and I liked it. I was a product manager and, um, but the product that I had was not the primary product of the company. It was a telecommunications company and this was, I managed a product that basically people built websites. This was a million years ago. So it was before things like, uh, you know, Wix and, uh, all the other WordPress and all that were out. So it was a, it was a cool thing, but there was no budget for it. So I started taking my business school knowledge and, uh, asked the, uh, VP of, of marketing to, if I could see the budget. And I started advocating for myself. Um, and then I sort of became the de facto budget guy for marketing. And I would end up going to the, I was a pretty junior guy back then. And I would go to the uh, senior management meetings to represent marketing in these budget conversations. And I did that for a few months really. And then the COO uh, called me into his office and said, 
I want you to do what you're doing for marketing for me. So he brought me in, gave me a promotion, brought me in as the RevOps guy. And because I had the business school and the finance and it, you know, came from marketing, it sort of made sense. And then I kind of moved up through RevOps um, in in that. And I, I guess one thing that's interesting with that is as a former marketing guy and coming up my first finance roles, being in operations, I'm very different than a lot of CFOs because I understand when people come to me and they're telling me what they need for their budget, I'm I'm not there trying to be the CF. No, I'm, I, I will say, let's figure this out. It's not in the budget. Can can we get an ROI? Is it is there a way to do this? And I'm I try to be best friends, you know, with the uh, department heads from the other groups because I've I've been there and I came up that way. And I don't want to be seen as a roadblock. I want to be seen as the guy that helps you find the solutions. This is purely opinion, but a young financial analyst who comes to you and says, how can I get better? I think one of the answers is read some really good narrative nonfiction written by a journalist. Some of the best books, my favorite books are narrative nonfiction. They have to probe just like you and I, right? And so they're taking raw data, facts, and turning it in to a story that makes us want to, well, heck, sometimes we lose sleep because we can't put the book down. Do you agree with that concept of that? Oh, absolutely. And as soon as you said that, I started immediately thinking of John Krakauer, where you take these, you know, this massive research and be able to distill it down to a narrative story. And that's really whether you're explaining a budget or maybe more importantly, if you're explaining a variance to the budget, if you've got a good story to it. And when you explain, don't just report the numbers. And I think this is where you can really add value as a, as a finance person. Don't just give the numbers, give the numbers and the why behind it. So that sort of understanding that investigative approach to storytelling, gathering your facts, creating a narrative to it is absolutely great advice for, uh, for anyone coming up. You used to run, or do you do you still own uh, the car wash? And and we may need to give people that who haven't read the book some context. But I think that's cool. And then what you did with the data uh, that you pulled out of this 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 car wash. I, tell me more. Yeah. So the car wash was a really interesting. It changed a lot of things about my career, but it it broadened things and it gave me um, an opportunity to get to dive way deeper into operations and, and marketing and everything else uh, that I uh, maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to do if I had just stayed on the traditional finance path. So I was, uh, when I was in telecommunications, um, as I moved up the ranks, I, um, got to know a couple of the, uh, investors in the telecommunications company just from preparing presentations and, uh, and interacting with them. And, um, I'd moved up from a product manager in marketing all the way through. I think when I left, my title was senior director or something like that. And I was managing a $150 million budget. I had 30 something people working for me. And, um, one of the, uh, investors in the telecommunications company had a, a small private placement, uh, business that the idea was they were going to just do a, a retail play and they were going to have a basket of different retail, um, stores and in, in, in various different industries. Um, but they started with this, uh, car wash and they were, uh, running it. I mean, there was when, when 
I talked to them about joining. They had two and were just about to open their third location. And um, he gave me an opportunity to come in and ha- get some sweat equity in the business and to really build this thing from the ground up. It was very much run like a, a mom and pop organization because there were no processes in place or anything and the, no real technology and sort of the whole industry was, you know, it's a mom and pop industry or it was back then. It's actually gotten a lot more sophisticated to the point where when we sold the car washes back in 2015, we had a little over a dozen of them. And um, we sold to a company that was backed by a $400 million investment from Leonard Green. And now they've got, and they ended up going public and there's all kinds of private equity in the car wash industry, which is crazy. But we, we were pretty early in this exterior express model and I could yammer on about that all day. But my favorite thing about working in the car wash is that we had, we wanted to run this traditionally mom and pop business the same way you would a big company. And I came from, uh, for me, it was a big company. I, I think the telecom company was doing about 450 million in revenue when I left. Um, but I came to this very small three location, uh, retail operation and I was used to the financial reports that we did every month in the big company, the reports that we gave to the board of directors, to the investors and everything. So I wanted to do that. And that was sort of my, it was my directive to do that too, to professionalize the industry and be able to go uh, in for a special use property, a very uh, niche business to go leverage it up and get a a relationship with banks. And and to do that, I had to professionalize it and help people overcome the stigma of car washes. So we did it in the building and high quality materials and all that, but also in presenting like we were a big corporate entity and not just like a a mom and pop business. And we were able to leverage it up and accelerate the growth. And, um, but during that, we kind of, that's where I've really I had a business intelligence team when I worked in telecom, but I didn't really, uh, I was just kind of going through the motion then. I knew what we had to provide and I was, you know, pulling KPIs. But when we had the car wash, it was just a blank slate. And I was able, I was pulling things, weather data by the hour from the National Weather Service going back a couple of years and not just rain, but like uh, cloud cover. And we had real time counts of the cars that were coming through. And it was a anyway, we made it a data science playground. And I could you you have to stop me because I could go on all day about some of these models we built about forecasting out electrical bills where um, you know, electric, it's not a linear, you can't just do a linear regression and, uh, guess what your electric bill is going to and model out what your electric bill is going to be. It's a multivariate, uh, you know, polynomial regression kind of thing. And it was Holy just, cow. it was kind of this playground and I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, I mean, it was the weirdest thing to be doing probably in the car wash industry, but by the time we sold it, I was so proud every, all the way down the budget we had from top line through cost of goods sold all the way through the expenses to the net income, we had it within like one and a half percent of just everything we were hitting. And this is on every location on a, on a weather driven business. And we just had so much data that we had gotten really, really good at modeling. And I just, I've tried to replicate that everywhere I've been since. So strange, uh, strange divergent path, but it, I think it served me well. That is amazing. Well, the name of your book is deep finance, corporate finance in the information age. And I just want to say real quickly that, and you're going to have to help me out on the kudos. I don't think I've ever asked someone that to help me out on the kudos, but I would say this is a very delicious book for that financial leader who has not been exposed to some of the language 
uh, in what about what we're going to be talking about. Uh, maybe the acumen is weak. I also, as I finished the book, I also thought this book is also for chief executive officers. It's also for chief operating officers. So I just want to give you some kudos because this is, I'm going to be reading it again. And, and I appreciate what you've written for us. So I'm just going to say, well done. Did did I leave anything out in my, my, my praise? Uh, no, I, I, and I really appreciate that. And especially I know how well-read you are and how many business books you read. So that really is high praise and it, it means a lot to me coming from you. So I guess, and you hit, it's, it's funny, you hit on exactly what my issue was. And it really took me a long time going back and forth with the editor on this because I wanted to geek out so much that I wanted to just, my first vision of the book was a textbook and it was, you know, who's nobody would want to read it. So working, going back and forth with the uh, editor, the first thing, and I should, you know, as a former journalist, I should have been thinking more about this. It's like, what is the biggest audience you're going to reach with this? And what are you trying to do here? And it was, I want people to get passionate about data science and how it fits into the finance world and how finance people with the skills we've already been doing for years, uh, just we, you know, different technology, maybe we're not using, uh, you know, our studio or, you know, doing things in, in Python or whatever, but doing analysis and business intelligence is, is sort of par for the course for finance. So I wanted people to understand, yes, you're a finance guy. No, you're not going to go back to school and learn Python and, you know, become a, a coder, but you have to understand this because there are so many tools out there that could make your life so much easier and make you so much better. And actually, you know, finance has a reputation of being a cost center for businesses. And especially as more and more things that we do in finance are automated, if you can't find a new way to uh, add value to the business, then your whole department can be replaced by robots, you know? <laughs> so I, you know, it was really narrowing down. Okay. Let me not try to write over anyone's head and who, who is this for? And try and also not to be condescending about it, but just say, look, here's, here's the fundamentals of it, but always keep remind and use anecdotes of, of things that I had to overcome and figure out. And hopefully someone younger who's just starting out or, or you know, whatever position they're in in the career, if they haven't had experience with some of these things, that it's a very accessible way to, to get that information. And hopefully by the end of the book, they're as passionate about as I am and they see the opportunity and potential from the automation and the data collection and, and all that. Lynn, correct me if you want to. To me, there are three big buckets in the book. AI is a big bucket. And there's some great, I'm telling you, there are some great visuals. In fact, I have one of the copies of your book. I'm in a PDF format and the visuals are just stunning and very health sticky in my mind. And we're going to talk about a few in a minute. So AI is a big bucket. Uh, data science is another bucket, which again, brilliant. And then ERP comes up and there's some quotes. I, you got a standing ovation on a couple of the, in fact, uh, Bruce Reed and I, who's been on the show a lot, uh, we actually talked about your book in one of the quotes this morning. So very, very relevant. You used a term that I loved it. It's in the, or I think it's in the introduction, you used the term democratizing data. And you told a story that all of us have been through about having to pull data, call it, clean it up, get it. Dis and by the way, by the time you, you, you've, you've reporting on it, it's like, you don't have time to really do some analysis, but the whole term democratizing data for everyone throughout the organization, 
I've got that highlighted. And that to me is really, I would almost say one of the foundational concepts in the book. Correct? Very, very much so. And it has been a, so I had my first business intelligence team in, it's, it's been 20 years ago now. And we, this is back in the days when we were using crystal reports and it was, we had to beg, borrow and steal to get access to data, of course. And that's when I, that's when I was working for the COO and the CFO did not, and the controller primarily did not want to share anything with us. He's, he's, I'm not giving you access to anything. I finally got read only access to a certain part of our, we were using Sage, I guess, or no. Uh, Solomon, I guess is the, anyway, I got, so I finally got uh, access into it and was able to pull a little bit of information and we were doing all, and crystal reports were such a mess. I don't know if you remember them. They were you I know, basically like PDFs being spit out and they were, they were just, um, uh, they were a real pain to put together. And we would, our, our report list just kept getting longer and longer and longer every week. It was, you know, service delivery needs this information and this department needs this information. Sales and marketing needs this finance needs this and that queue we'd have never worked through it. And so one of the, one of the guys who worked for me back then was like, couldn't we just give, you know, have a way to get act, give access to this stuff for people. And it was that it just dawned on me, like, why would I need to be a gatekeeper? There's, there's certain people who get their power in the organization by being that gatekeeper. And they like their power comes from, Oh, if you want this, you've got to come through me. But I thought, and you know, this is my earliest before I even really knew what it meant to be a data driven organization. But if you could provide the senior manager that's on the front line of the install group with the data that he needs to be able uh, to do his job better, whether it's, you know, how quickly they're doing installs or what, you know, how many trouble calls they're taking a day. Don't make them jump through hoops. And this is back, back then dashboards, you know, there were company intranets. There weren't a lot of them. So we really shifted our focus from, yeah, tell us what report you want to, how can we make the data as accessible as possible to everyone? And that was a lot of fun. And that felt groundbreaking at the time. Do I have permission to, I don't want this to be a Raj, uh, a Siskel and Ebert comment about the book, but you have the the four stages of digital transformation. And I already know, just talking to you before we hit record, you're a process-centric individual. You could probably walk into any manufacturing firm here in Columbia, Missouri, and you could spot that's an issue, that's waste. I see three bottlenecks here. I, you, that's just the way you are hot-wired. Uh, that was factory installed when you came out of the womb. Uh, having said that, your four stages, and this is somewhat truncated, but ide- identifying and optimizing, then automating, then improving using data, and then monetizing the process. One thing I thought about, Glenn, is for those of us who are very process-centric, would it make sense to also have what I would call the catalyst Because the catalyst, he or she could even step in and say, wait a minute, we don't want to optimize that process. Let's obliterate it. Do we even need? So at some point, do you ever, ever bring in a catalyst that says, do we even want to enhance uh, this process or automate it when it should be, let's nuke it? And you're smiling. I I am because (laughs) again, this is your, you and I are on the same wavelength. So Another, you know, democratization of data is something I love, and and that made its way into the book. Another phrase that didn't make it into, into its book, but if I ever do a sequel, it, it's going to be in there. It is, you can't automate chaos. So, <laughs> in that 
in the four steps that you talked about of, of the digital transformation that I, that I list in the book, the first thing that's very important is to identify the processes. And, and then, so to your point, when you go through and you map out the processes, and uh, we talked a little bit off air about this too, uh, I, I've worked, I've, in my previous role, I was CFO slash COO, and that wasn't something I aspired to do, but it was my nature kind of led it, uh, led it to happen. And the first thing I did when I got to that company, and the first thing I did when I got to this company was it's basically, it's my own version of an ISO 9000 audit where, and the reason I do this is not because I'm trying to step on the COO's toes. It's because I'm greedy for that data that's up at the, you know, through the whole, everything from the customer, from lead prospect, all the way through to when a customer turns off, I want to gather data everywhere. And if I'm going to get that data, I've got to understand the process where we're logging the data. And in so doing, I um, can, I can see where, where there's bottlenecks. And if you can find the bottlenecks, then that's probably where data is also being lost. So if I can find a way to solve for that bot bottleneck and automate, I mean, it's kind of, it feeds itself. So if I can find a way to automate it, I know that in that automation, I'm going to grab those data pieces and they're not going to be fat fingered and, and they're not going to be skipped because they're going to be part of the process that flows through. And that, make, that makes sense. In the AI section of the book, and we can't, we can't get too deep because we could get bogged down here. And again, it's great in the book, but there are some terms and concepts that you bring up and I loved it. It, it simplified it for people like me. You mentioned uh, AI learning, machine learning, and deep learning. Just real quickly, Glenn, if it's even possible, what are the basic differences between those Three. Yeah. So uh, you, this illustration, I think that, uh, and if we could, if we end up throwing it on the page, this would be a great illustration to have on there because it's, it's the Venn diagram where instead of crossing over each circle is within an, another circle. So artificial intelligence is the broader, you know, the, the uh, people, when you, when people think of AI, they think of like Hal from, uh, from 2001 or, um, you know, the, the super sci-fi version of, uh, the robot that can talk to you and the all knowing computer. And that's, I mean, that's, you know, if we ever reach this Ray Kurzweil kind of world where that existed, that is, um, general AI. And that is where, uh, computer intelligence, uh, meets and then, uh, quickly after that would exceed human intelligence. And that is something that, you know, all AI people are, are kind of aspiring to, but it's still far down the road and everybody's got a different view of what it is. But the AI that's out there now is more narrow AI. So it can be Netflix's recommendation engine for what the next movie you should watch or Amazon's recommendation or the spam filter on your Gmail or, um, you know, the predictive text on your phone. These are all very good AI, but they can only do very specific things. Specific versus um, that's general. called right, right. So this is uh, in this self-driving cars is is narrow AI. It's it's amazing the algorithms and everything that's used, but it's still it's still uh, narrow. And there's so I think I always am amazed what uh, what Google's doing and like with with AlphaGo and how they keep expanding that and how it keeps really doing amazing things, whether it's, you know, first beating the world's best go players, which go is even a more complex. There's more possibilities than chess and it's in the way 
that that AlphaGo learned to play Go is not the way any human would do it. It just it used true machine learning to figure out ways to beat the best players in the world. But that's still narrow AI. But they're applying that in different ways um, in uh, everything from identifying uh, cancer in, in lung um, X-rays and doing it doing so better than humans are. I mean, there's so narrow AI is getting very good, but it's it's only going to do what it's designed for. So anyway, that's AI. There's general and narrow. But then within AI, there's a subset of, of a, a type of artificial intelligence that is machine learning. And that is where you're using massive data sets. There's a million different algorithms. And I go through a bunch of them in the book. That's probably the driest part of the book. But I felt like, let's just put it out there and let's simplify it and make it as easy to understand as possible so it doesn't feel to someone who doesn't know about machine learning. Like just show some examples of linear regression is the simplest example of, of a, you know, some people might argue that, that that's a pretty weak algorithm to, to call, to call it machine learning, but it's, uh, you know, it's just a two variable predictive model. And then you go through the, the various different types of machine learning that are basically just, you have a bunch of data, you uh, train this algorithm on the data, and then you t uh, test it to figure out, um, you know, what the consistencies are in the data and what you, uh, you go from descriptive to predictive, um, you know, and what does this data tell you? And then you have kind of your validation set and then you start running, um, uh, running real world information through there. And then that's how the models work is if you've trained them right and built them right, then they can, um, uh, do the, crazy things like drive a car or know better than uh, your friends do what movie you might might like to watch next. And then a smaller subset of that, and this is the most fascinating and the hardest to explain, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but this is deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning. And what deep learning is, tries to do is replicate the way the human brain works. So you have um, inputs that come in and they go through... Uh, a neural network. So it, it tries to emulate the way the, the human brain thinks. And uh, if you're putting in pictures of dogs, you don't, uh, uh, you don't label them as anything. You just put them in and let the, uh, the network try to identify what they are. And I'm, I'm already starting to get too deep. So let me, <laughs> let me no, maybe back going. up keep, a little keep, bit. Keep so going. yeah. Yeah. So without it's in an unsupervised learning model, you're just feeding this network uh, information and then you get an output and it goes through depending on how complex the uh, the neural network is it'll have uh, you know multiple layers that it goes through and this is considered black box artificial intelligence and the reason black box if, if you're not familiar with the phrase means humans it, it can't comprehend what's going on I mean you can know you know there certain things are weighted going through the model and you use back propagation to go through and uh, adjust the model and, and, and tune the model and there's all this crazy calculus in it and everything so you can know fundamentally what uh, how the algorithm works but what it does when it's identifying a picture and it goes through these multiple layers you can't explain that and if it's trying to identify a person you might think oh well it's picking up how far apart their eyes are from each other or, or whatever. And it's, it may instead just be picking up, you know, some crease that's under your eyebrow or whatever. I mean, it's just, you're not, it's, it doesn't think like we do that. Oh, it's got two eyes and a nose. That's probably a human face or whatever. So it's convolutional neural networks are the most interesting, the most confusing and the real sci-fi stuff, but they're already, um, 
already doing work, uh, self-driving cars and uh, photo identification and uh, some natural language processing. I mean, the, the applications of it are, are pretty amazing and it gets it gets pretty deep pretty fast. But uh, I don't know. I feel like I've just been really rambling. on. <laughs> and by the way, the, the book is not overwhelming. It's readable when we get into the AI section. Real quickly, before we move on to data science, is it Deep Blue, uh, the, the computer system? Did Deep Blue, when it beat Gary Kasparov, is that machine learning or deep learning? Uh, so Deep Blue, and I, you know, I don't remember, like even, what's the one, so Deep Blue was IBM, and then what's the one that uh, beat uh, Kevin Watson in, in Jeopardy or whatever? There's, uh, was that his name, Kevin, the, the all-time I, Jeopardy champ or whatever so. there was, the IBM, was, was that also Deep Blue? I don't know. Maybe it was a later iteration of it, but it was, so it is, and what AlphaGo is, or what Go is doing with Google now is something very similar where it's just pulling in all the data that it, that it can. Um, and I guess going back to the chess one though, you know, when that happened, we didn't have sort of the, uh, the technology that we do now with the uh, processing that we're using from these uh, graphic uh processors that are actually work great for the simultaneous stuff that we're doing in, in artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. But it was, um, you know, and there's a limited sort of number of uh, moves. Granted, it's, it's, it's huge, but it's, it's not infinite. Um, so the, the type of machine learning that that was is very uh, naive or, or simple compared to what's out there now. So AlphaGo has gone so far beyond what, what that was. And that was, um, you know, so the biggest thing I think about with machine learning is massive data sets that you're feeding into right. the model. And right. so with, with the old deep blue, it wasn't as much on the data as it was uh, doing the computational work to see if I move here, what are the options and, and all that. So it was more rather than fed on data, it was more calculating odds uh, for the moves going forward, if that makes sense. It, no, it does. And again, I want to make it very clear people listening, this is a fun part of the book. So I learned uh, from this. So it may seem complicated, but you made it very accessible. So again, very well done on that section on artificial intelligence. We're going to come back to AI, some practical applications when we wrap up. We're going to gloss over a little bit with data science. We did have John Daniels on over a year ago, and he Uh, I had him on. He's not written a book, but he spoke at a Tableau event a few years ago. He spoke to a group of CFOs. I think it was hosted by Ide Bailey, and it was outstanding. So we'll have a link to the show notes page. But I do want to – am I allowed to rant? Can I I share a rant real quickly with you, Glenn? I I feel like – Please please do. I feel like I have a new friend here. So here's my rant on data science, and this is without getting too deep uh, within some of the content in your book. Not every business can have a Glenn Hopper. Uh, By the way, I wish every business had someone like you in their finance and operations team. I would also add marketing and sales as well. (sighs) Most of the businesses I work with are $50 million and under. I have a few that are 75, 90. So my day job I'm in the consulting space. So a lot of us, 50 million and under, even even 20 million and under, there can be a lot of data. I love working with uh, temp staffing. Think about it. When you've got a temp staffing firm that has about 50 to 60 clients, 
that may be staffing upwards to a thousand people per day. You have all these different customers, you have all these customer segments. Again, there's a lot of data there. That's one example. My frustration, Glenn, is any small business that has data, it is not cheap. It is not cheap to find someone that can be like you with your car wash store where someone is interested. Let's get the data from this operating system, the data from this operating system. So my question for you is as we try to analyze sales data, gross margin, uh, gross, gross profit data, getting from extraction to transforming to loading it into some data warehouse or data like, please give me a solution for smaller businesses because you're going to spend about as much for what I just described as someone at a $200 million company. That, that's my rant. And I don't think there's an answer, but I don't think your book has a solution, but I just bring it up because I got a little frustrated because there's a cost to try to implement some of the data science ideas. I'm done with my rant. So two things. One, let me paint a very rosy picture of the future. (laughs) Um, And there's already some of this out there. As machine learning becomes more readily available. So there's whether you're using TensorFlow or uh, even, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of like the simplest drag and drop kind of AI you you can do. Um, there's a, a tool out there. It's incredible. I, I was able to use it as a student and it really was true drag and drop machine learning um, where you could uh, pick what whatever kind of model you wanted to run it through and you drop in this data and it just goes behind the scenes and does all this uh, incredible model building and predictive stuff. That tool, and I'll, I'll go ahead and promote them here because they're they're pretty incredible, and they're priced out of uh, out of range for most small companies. Uh, Data Robot is the name of the company, and a, an individual account on Data Robot is about fifty grand a year. <laughs> and the, so the problem with that is it's great, and if you know what you're doing, if you are a data scientist, you can use it and get the right results. But if you aren't a data scientist and you just have fifty grand a year to spend on a toy and you don't know what the models are. I mean, it's one thing when I say convolutional or, uh, or neural networks rather are, um, are black box. You can't really explain what's happening, uh, but you can explain the results. And if you're a data scientist, you know how to train the model and, and uh, make sure that your uh, the model's not overfit and is, is working right. But if you're not a data scientist, if you're just a, a, a and I don't mean just that, that's not the way I say it, but if you're, you know, if you're a marketing product manager and you want to build a model, but you don't know what a, a random forest model is, and you just pick that on, on your data robot and jam the data through, and you're trying to be a data, data driven decision-making company, well, you might as well shake a magic eight ball, you know, if you, if you don't know what the model is doing and what it's telling you. So I guess I hear what you're saying, but I do think that there is, there's a huge push and nobody's gotten it yet, but low code and no code data science. So I think that you'll get to a point where not everybody has to have these super expensive, true data engineers that are doing this heavy duty programming. I think drag and drop and there's going to be someone's going to come along that's like the quick books of of data science um and um they're going to have a 
a solution here, but that's not there now. So the frustration you're feeling, I'm, I see it every day, a small, because I'm in the same space of the under 50 million revenue businesses. And so, but you do have some data, but it's all, it's always disjointed and it's very siloed. It could be, oh, in this business we use, and I'll, I'll throw out product names here, not that I'm promoting any of them or not, but you know, we may use HubSpot on the front end is our CRM. And then we've got some other tool that we use for project management. We've got our, another tool that we use uh, for accounting and they don't talk to each other. And every, you know, the data exists in these different silos. And if you've got, you know, if you get a finance team, you've got a controller slash CFO, maybe an AP person or part-time AP person and AR person and, you know, whatever, a, a part-time bookkeeper where's the money in the budget for a, a data scientist? So um, what I, when, and I talk about this in the book too, is there are a lot, I mean, if you tell me any function in finance right now, I bet I can tell you an off the shelf product that automates it, whether it's bank reconciliations, uh, expense tracking and all that. So what, what I say is if you can, get this automation in place. And that's that's my impetus. It's necessity is the mother of invention. I want this data. I've got to do the basics of, of finance and accounting. And if if all my uh, headcount head dollars are used on, on people that are doing the basic functions, I don't have any budget left for a, a data scientist or a wannabe data scientist or whatever. So I'm trying to put in as many automated steps as I can. And then if the right person is there, I'd love to upskill them. If not, I need to hire another person. I'm not saying I want to reduce my headcount budget. If anything, I might need to increase it a little bit uh, because I might need you know higher skilled employees. But I think the more automation there is there, the different kind of hires you'll be able to get. And then you can have people who can use this data and do something with it. And there's data, basic data science can start with something as simple as Excel and Tableau. I mean, you can that you can do a fair a amount lot. of data science with those two tools. Yeah, you and I are going to have to come back and talk about this topic again. Just data warehousing for dummies in finance. We could talk. I bet too. I, and I bet you've done some. You do a lot of public speaking around the country, and I bet you've hit on this topic. But we'll move on. I I still think it's a good conversation to at least get us thinking about uh, that that topic. You have a chapter, I think it's either chapter four or chapter five on ERP, and this was uh, brilliant. I'm going to, of course, no one can see me. I'm going to turn my head, and I want to read uh, a quote. Uh, is is the guy's name Eric Fredrickson? Did I say that correctly? Uh, Fredrickson. Mm-hmm. Okay. He, he made a quote in your ERP chapter about it's more likely the case that there hasn't yet been a compelling event that drives change and therefore it's not been viewed as an urgent priority. Uh, on the other hand, we've got Steve Cakebread, whom I mentioned earlier, the first CFO at Salesforce who helped to take them public. They went all out. Their first year in business, they made the decision we're going with Oracle and, and but I have a feeling they had a big budget. I they were probably well backed. So they're they're not the perfect case study for some of the businesses that we work with and listeners who are uh, hearing this. So it's interesting about the case of waiting versus jumping in now. What's your thoughts, Glenn? You're smiling. 
do we jump in or do we wait? Do we jump in or wait? So, <laughs> um, you like that question? If I could digress for once, you like? Yeah, I did. I do because I'm. I, I've lived this in my last four companies. I mean, it is. It's for the past decade. This is for businesses of the size world that you and I live in. It, this is a big deal. It's you know you get too big for kind of the basic uh, accounting package, but you're not. You know, you don't have the budget yet to buy the big package. What are you going to do? Um, so <laughs> I'm going to digress <laughs> and this will make sense in a minute. My plan is to, uh, I have, I want to have one more good exit and I want to, uh, retire in the next, you know, five to seven years is, is my plan. And when I retire, semi retire and I want to go teach. And the reason I want to a college professor. So the reason I want to do that is, it's a lot easier to sit in the ivory tower of academia and talk about doing this stuff than to get out in the real world and do it. So <laughs> there is a big difference. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that said, I, you know, we're, we're speaking the same language here and I have to tell you, I'm in my current role. We're, um, a, a pretty small company as far, you know, as far as staffing goes. Um, and we're growing very quickly and I was, charged when I came in, uh, t t my directive here, as it was in my last company was get us ready to scale, get, you know, we've been a startup. We didn't really have any processes. We've gotten to this point. Um, we can't keep doing what we're doing now is not scalable. We can't replicate. We can't, uh, you know, clone the people that we have that are doing all this magic work. We need some processes in place. So to do that, I thought, well, we have all these disparate systems. If we could get one ERP, um, we can get all this data together um, and we can, you know, start there with uh, having access to all the data, not having all the siloed information. And there are ways to around this, but I've been at this company about a year and a half. I'm still not complete with my ERP conversion. I've got my finance stack I want to do. It's, it's a mile long, but I've got to get some of these basics done first. And it's, it's like every, I mean, whether it's finance or IT or whatever you are in the company, we're all dealing with unlimited wants and limited resources. Um, but I know when I get to the end of the rainbow that I'm going to have the coolest thing and I'm going to automate more. And the people that I'm having to use now, I mean, there are tools out there, again, back to the off the shelf things that I can automate my AR. You know, if I can automate 85% of my accounts receivable, then my person who's doing AR, I can uh, you know, have them one go after the really bad offenders and and get much more bang for the buck. But on top of that, if they're not spending all day making phone calls, sending emails, uh, you know, doing the, what they have to do to to collect from clients, then I can repurpose them on and you know train them up, upskill them to be a, a data scientist. Or you know, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. So yes, I, I understand the reason for the question, and I hope it do doesn't come across in the book like, hey, this is a real simple thing to do because it is it is very difficult in the uh, in the real world. Yeah, I also appreciated another quote by this same CEO that you mentioned in the book. He goes on to talk about, and I'm going to pick up in the middle of the quote, this focus on best of breed has been a core part of our approach. Instead of having one solution that ties to all things, to all people, we have a portfolio of solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of different companies. Now, he's speaking my language. So I've been a part of numerous ERP implementations, SAP, Dynamics, 
but I also work with some companies who are using, I won't say their name. It has a green uh, branding and it's the 800 pound gorilla, but we have some of these peripheral systems that are actually doing a pretty doggone good job. They don't do a good job at talking to the system, even though there are middleware solutions for them. So that is a solution, right? Not necessarily having the big kahuna, but maybe several best. Is that, are you okay with that? I am. And it's you, I mean, depending on what resources you have, and this goes all the way back to what I said about the first step in the uh, digital transformation is identify your processes. So if you just say, I'm going to go buy this $100,000 a year ERP, and that's going to fix everything. And you try to plug processes into that, then you're, you know, it's like you're giving someone medicine and then trying to find symptoms that that's going to solve or whatever, you know, it's like, it doesn't, that's backwards. So if you identify the processes and then you look at them individually uh, and you've got to have, it can't just be one person. It can't just be the CTO or the uh, CIO or the CFO uh, saying, oh, these are the systems we need. It is, what are all the processes we're doing? What are we trying to solve for here? And what's the best solution for the process? Because if you, if you plug in the, ERP that doesn't meet your needs and you just think it's going to be the the salve that's going to fix everything, then you're suddenly you're going to break things and that ERP, you're not, you know, you're going to have to customize it. And then the expense starts really building up. And then you find, oh, we used to do this in our old project management system. This one doesn't do it. And you can get in a real nightmare. So it goes back to start with the process, then find the tools. And it, if you've got the resources uh, you know, it's connecting these systems can be difficult, but really API, I mean, I don't know. It depends on, on what your comfort level is, but you know, most products that are out there now have pretty slick API mapping interfaces that you can get things to talk to each other. The problem is when you, when you mentioned earlier, like when you're trying to extract that data and dump it somewhere into whether it's, you know, some tables or a data lake or data warehouse or whatever, if you don't have the internal resources, then you're kind of hosed. But I, th- I think someone's going to, I am optimistic. I don't know how long it's going to take, but um, someone is going to have the next generation of tool that's out there for the small and mid-sized businesses that makes some of this stuff more accessible. And that is, it's not as expensive as a, as a full-blown ERP. And I just, I, I think it's coming. And I think, you know, because a small business, the amount of data that you need for training machine learning models, small businesses, even if you're collecting all the data you have, you know, if you're a business that only sends out a couple of hundred invoices a month or, you know, does so many transactions a month, you're not going to have anywhere near the amount of data that you need to train right. these big complex models. Right. Uh, I want to, before we wrap up, I want to talk about, and I don't think we're going to have time to do all of these. Let's, so let's just pick one. I want to take one practical example of artificial int- intelligence. And this is an article that I've shared with a lot of clients over the last few years. It came out uh, HBR 2017, I believe. The story, it's, it's, it's almost like too good to be true. It's almost like you could not have written a better article. It's a simple case study about a Harley Davidson dealership in New York. And the guy who owns the dealership ran into somebody who said, you, you ought to consider looking at this AI tool called Albert. And all of a sudden, within one weekend, he had 15 leads. So as I remember the story, I haven't reread it for quite a while, but the story goes that this AI 
was reading the CRM, getting into the CRM system, looking at some of the other marketing tools, trying to figure out who is the customer, who is the ideal customer. And it came up with these leads. So all of a sudden they went from like one lead a week to about 40 leads a week. I just think that is a great example. It's very tangible, something that's sticky. Are, were you were you familiar with that story? And, and if not, I'm sure you're familiar with similar examples. Yeah, I am. I am familiar with that story, actually. And it's really it's funny because what the AI was doing in that case is what marketing people have been doing for years. For since, years. Since I was in marketing where, yeah, where, where, you know, it used to be you would define a persona. You would say, this is Jane. She's a 40 year old housewife and she has two kids and this, you know, this is what she does. And you would say, she's the person we're going to market to. And this is how we're going to market to her. And this is Bob. He's single. He's 22. You know, you'd have all these personas. Well, in that Harley Davidson case, they actually, um, didn't, they didn't program. They didn't say it's personas. It, the, right. the machine learning went out and actually found, found, I don't remember what they like. Yeah. Like people that were similar to it. And right. It, I think about this all the time that the greatest technology in my mind in, in, of my lifetime is, uh, and we're still, in, we're in the nascent stages of it, but the greatest technology of my lifetime <laughs> being machine learning and it's used to give me better Instagram ads, you know, and, and stuff like that. I mean, for that guy that had the Harley dealership, that's great for us. It's like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, Instagram sometimes, I, I know this isn't really what's happening, but it does feel like, you know, your phone is listening to you. The, these ads are so targeted and so perfect. And that that's really the, the the amazing things that we're doing with machine learning is is in marketing right now. But I mean, it's, you know, it's, there's so much data on it. And with the your Facebook, Amazon, you know, all the, the big companies out there that Apple that have all this information. I mean, it makes sense that they're using all this data they have to drive their revenue. So the Harley thing, and, and that was, I think maybe it was a concern consulting group that came in and did mm-hmm. that for him. But it was, that's a, a wonderful application and it's easier for people to understand. And it's, it's kind of, it's front of the house, it's top line, it's sexier than the back, back office kind of stuff. But, but the back office stuff, if you've got, if you are applying that same technology to predicting when your customers are going to churn and you can do some prescriptive uh, stuff to change, you know, to, to keep your customers from churning, you know, think about customer acquisition costs. And that's, that can be as important, if not more important than the, the front end stuff. But it's just, it's not, it's not as cool and it's not as easy. It's not as accessible as talking about a guy who's got a Harley dealership and plugs in this one algorithm and suddenly his sales go through the roof. I, I'm very lucky. The first couple of controllership positions I had, I did zero accounting. In fact, staff members would have probably crucified me if I would gotten into our uh, accounting system. And so I was fortunate, but one thing I, I knew that I hated, I know my first controllership position, we had some people just full time. All they did was reconciliations. And I just thought this is the, and this is even in the 1990s, even back then I'm thinking this is stupid. It's just, we're wasting way too much time and we didn't have the technology tech today where e-commerce is a big industry. We have e-commerce Name a niche, and we have it. So consider the $100 million firm that has orders, then you have the credit card processor, and then you get the bank. That's the three-way match. We're still not there in terms of 
a computer being able to do those manual matches because you get timing issues, you've got chargebacks, but that is an example of a job at risk. And it can't, for me, can't come soon enough. But for the typical accountant, seasoned analyst, do they need to be worried about certain positions at risk? I think the lower level, yes, but maybe uh, g- g- go ahead. Yeah. So there's an article, it's been a couple of months now, but there's an article in the New York Times uh, that said that, so the, the title of the article was the robots are coming for fill and accounting. And there, you know, it goes into exactly what you were talking about. And I will say, so the, the what you were, the problem you were talking about, it could maybe be fed by real uh, machine learning. But the, the interesting thing right now, when people talk about AI and machine learning in accounting and finance, for the most part, unless you're at Google or there was a great, I don't remember if it was a podcast or an article, but listening to the uh, uh, CFO from Google talk about the stuff that they're doing in finance. It's, I mean, it's like a whole other world from anything you and I have ever seen, but what we, what is available to us is uh, RPA, robotic process automation, which is not, I mean, it's not truly machine learning. It is basically uh, just in, in a nutshell, what RPA is, is if you're uh, like your example of a reconciliation, if it is, you know, it's, you can train the model like you would train a person. You you can say, you know, this will come, this is how you handle a chargeback. And you basically set all the rules and they're, they're software rules. The, the computer is not thinking for itself. It's doing mm-hmm. rote things, but it can do it. Once you program it, it'll do it, you know, at computer speed compared to human speed. So, and there are, there are tools out there. Now I'm thinking of these continuous clothes. I don't, I don't want to do commercials for any more people, but there's continuous close processes that are out there. There are uh, online invoicing tools that people upload their invoice. And instead of having a person have to enter those, the system just grabs the vendor name, the line items and, and, and can code them to the right, uh, to the right account. So there, there are more and more, and and for small and bis- medium-sized businesses, very inexpensive tools that are way more less expensive than hiring a person. So, to that end, I would say that it's a lot of that is already here, um, or at least you know maybe you get eighty percent of it done by the system, and then you're only managing the the twenty percent exceptions. But think about how much more time that frees up. And there's and I think. Some of the bigger tools, like some of that true continuous close stuff, it does get pretty expensive, but there's, it's coming and it's trickling down market and somebody's going to figure out the scale and they, if they can get something and, and run it cheaply enough for the, for it to be appealing to small and mid-sized businesses, it's going to, it's going to take off and you could build from there. I was really intrigued when you said you spent some time learning how to code in the book. And it it made me feel like, oh, I can admit to Glenn that back in the 1990s, on my own, I learned a little bit. I actually went to SQL Server school in Overland Park, Kansas. I loved it. Uh, I learned uh, a tool called Monarch because a lot of our reports uh, were spooled and, and came from a mainframe system. So I learned that using Monarch... I could read these green bar reports, put them into a database format. Uh, so I was learning some really cool tools back then. Probably the best thing I ever learned, and I even recommend this to CFOs today, go to, go to um, Udemy or go somewhere and just learn 
access. Don't even take notes. Just just learn the basics of access because you're going to learn what a key, uh, what a primary key is. You're going to learn about tables and 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 uh, these child relationships. That has stuck with me for 20 years, and it's helped me to understand the backends of ERP systems and other solutions that have databases behind them. My question for you is, that may be too much, you coding. And by the way, just listening to you, it's like, man, I wish I had access to you 24-7, 365. But uh, what's the happy medium for people? And I don't care if they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s. I so Suggestions for learning uh, these skills? Yeah. So I think, um, I, I have this sort of OCD nature and, uh, I'm, I, I call myself a, a lifelong learner. I'm sort of addicted to Udemy and, uh, te, you know, uh, to edX and, and Coursera. Um, so, and I also have this sort of mentality of if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. So, um, so like you doing the, uh, the sequel course, my version of that is, um, a couple of years ago, and you can actually, you can do it online. Uh, it's the most popular course at Harvard is CS 50 taught by David Mallon. And it is, uh, it's, it's not just computer science majors taking it. And the, the reason for the popularity of the course is exactly what you said. If you can understand the underlying technology, yes. then it, when you make a decision, you know, you have a concept of the right. resources that it's going to take and you understand what's possible and what's not. So you have people who are, you know, philosophy majors and English majors taking the CS50 course. You can go to edX and take it for free. And they've even got, they've uh, made different versions of it. There's like CS50 for lawyers, CS50 for, you know, whatever different industries. And it's free on edX unless you want the certificate and then you got to pay for it. But, uh, I took that and I also took Andrew Ng's, uh, machine learning course. It was, you know, Andrew Ng's the uh, Stanford Coursera guy and all that. And it was super low tech and all that, but it was incredible information. And I, it took me, I don't, I don't know what the recommended amount of time that that was going to take. It took me way too long. I'm not, I'm not a data. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, an engineer and I'm not a, a developer. Um, but I powered through that course because I wanted to understand really what, what is this machine learning? What are these models that we're training? What does it mean to train a computer? That seems like such an alien concept. So I will never, you know, I love data robot because I understand enough now that I can drag and drop stuff there. I'll never build my own machine learning model. I think I have one item on my GitHub and it's a, it's a decision tree that has about three steps in it, but that, that's the, that's the extent of my, uh, my machine learning programming. But so to me, taking those courses was important because it, it helps me to see the what's possible and understand it and be able to speak about it. But for a lot of people, I mean, just watching YouTube videos like, okay, so maybe you don't want to go take a whole sequel course. You're not, you know, you're at a point in your career, you've got enough going on in your finance life. But if you were trying to figure out how to get access to more data and what's going on and why you can't get to this system or whatever, you know, watch Watch a couple of 20 minute videos on SQL or watch a couple of 20 minute videos on uh, Python or, you know, just to understand what's going out there. And that's really for machine learning. It was so alien to me, whatever, you know, five or six years ago when I first started with it, that I would watch these five minute videos over and over just thinking like, 
you know, how am I going to figure this out? But uh, I, I since went on and got a graduate certificate and, and really went full OCD <laughs> on it. But it's, you know, you don't have to go that far. And I'm no one's going to put me in front of a blinking cursor and tell me to build them something. And the last time I did <laughs> a SQL query was, it's been two or three years. And, but it was, it was huge. And this was, this made this was my ROI for taking all the all the SQL I did. Uh, I replaced a, a fractional CFO at, at a company, and he had this crazy process. And we've all seen him this massive spreadsheet that nobody could figure out. And this was just to calculate sales commissions. And we only had five salespeople, and this guy would take five days every month going through the uh, these spreadsheets um, and and you know trying to link everything. So I thought, well, I'm not going to spend five days every month doing this. Um, I don't get paid by the hour, so um, I basically ripped everything down, put this little uh, SQLite group of tables on my person or not my person, my work laptop. And, uh, but just not my, they were not a server. They were just on my machine. And I, it took me, uh, a day and a half. And I think I had to call a couple of friends and found out I had misplaced commas. You know how SQL queries are. You put one thing in the wrong place and it doesn't really tell you where it's, it's broken. But anyway, I spent a weekend writing this query, but that meant every month, instead of going through the process he did, I clicked a button. <laughs> well, you know, I had to load the data in, but then I just, clicked a button and in 30 minutes I could output everything and then just dump it into whatever a PDF, Excel, you know, CSV, whatever, and then get the salespeople out their commission reports. And I've, I've just bought that much more time with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can take it as far as you want. And if you're, if you're not going to take it as far where you're going to be writing your own queries, at least understanding it so that when you're doing some kind of crazy process like that, that takes you multiple days in Excel, and, and you hear people bash Excel every now and then, even though I think we all use it more than anything else. But when you that you'll know, wait a minute, this seems like a problem that could be better handled by a relational database, you know? So. Right. By And by the way, that that commission story that's in the book, I love that, by the way. Uh, one, I do want to do one quick shout out in the book. Uh, I am going to be doing either this weekend or sometime next week, I'm going to try to do my first chat bot on Amazon. You there, you have a, here are the steps to do your own chat bot and I'm going to do it. And I just think that's so cool. Thank you for putting that in the book. Uh, one other shout out. Can we shout out your CEO? Uh, I want to thank him for letting me have all this time with you. So are, are, are we, or does he even know you're doing this or, or she? So uh, he does, he does. And, uh, I, he's been very patient with me as I go on this, uh, crazy podcast journey. So I always have to be sure that I mention Sandline Global e-discovery company <laughs> that I work for now that, uh, and, uh, John Canty is our, our CEO. And we've, uh, I've been there about a year and a half now and it's, uh, it's been a, a great place to work. We're, uh, he just, he just got back in town. We just, uh, stood up an office in Dubai. Um, we're, uh, it's been, this is the first time I've ever done international accounting. So it's, pretty exciting for me that we've got office in Frankfurt, um, an office in uh, Taipei, Taiwan, now du- Dubai, and we're looking at some other international offices. So it's been a really, and the, and the company growth has been incredible. And uh, the amount of uh, freedom we have to uh, to sort of build our, our dominions and our domains and build this sort of global business intelligence platform that we're all working on is it's very exciting to be there. And, uh, and this is kind of part of it. I mean, it's just, it's good to, to network and, and talk to like-minded people. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, so he, he's, he's been great and, and give him a message for me. 
T- tell him I will want to do this with you again soon. <laughs> just just pass that along uh, to him. <laughs> and, and I'm not taking no for an answer. Hey, this was not in the script. I have to ask, uh, off the top of your head, what are some of your favorite books you've ever read? So... Can can I go fiction first? Can I throw out a couple? <laughs> so I won't I won't necessarily say what I've read. I'll say what I'm excited about this year. First off, Cormac McCarthy has two books coming out. It's been 15 plus years since Cormac McCarthy's had a book come out. Uh, so you know, The Road and uh, Blood Meridian and uh, the the uh, uh, um, but he's uh, so he's got a couple of books coming out. And uh, Robert Persig, who's uh, passed on years ago, but the guy that wrote. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Layla, they're, they've found some of his old writings and they've put another uh, book together. And I think that comes out this month. So I'm very exciting, excited about those. But um, more uh, germane to, to our audience here, I, I think I'm going to actually promote two, uh, two of my former professors, um, their books. One is... Competing in the Age of AI by okay. um, Kareem Lakani and Marco Yancidi. And uh, it is what I love about Competing in the Age of AI. It is, it's less technical than my book, even, but it's, and, and it starts, oh, really? with, uh, and it starts, what, what they say at the very beginning that I, and this is the, this is the thesis of the whole book. In contrast with the current wealth of data, analytics, and AI, we still appear to be suffering from a shortage of managerial wisdom. And I think, so the whole book is about, it's not about how this technology works or whatever. It is how you, uh, as an individual in a company, how your company, how your industry and globally, how we're going to best use AI to drive businesses forward. And it's, it's very easy to follow and it's a uh, Harvard uh, press. And so it's typical Har- you know, there's a, a million case studies in there that are uh, easier to read, I think, than the ones that they, they give the students, but it's uh, th- that is a, a great approach um, and just an understanding for someone. Maybe that's their first dive into what AI can do. Um, and the second book, is lead and disrupt. It's by um, Michael Tushman and uh, Charles O'Reilly. And the what I love about that book is something that has stuck with me since the first time I read it. And it just I think about this every day. And they talk about explore and exploit. So mm. exploit is be have the incremental improvements, continuous improvement to keep doing what you're doing and do it better and better and more efficiently. But you have to also be focusing on exploring new opportunities. Otherwise, I think we mentioned Blockbuster earlier. Um, otherwise, you know, if, if you're not exploring, you're going to get left behind by the next wave of technology. So those, that kind of one, two punch of, uh, competing in the age of AI and, uh, lead and disrupt thinking about exploration and exploitation of what you're, you're doing, I think are, are a good combo to read. I enjoyed this a lot. Just, Within five minutes, my first thought is, my first thoughts, this guy is humble, this guy is hungry, this guy is authentic, and he just loves learning. And it's all of those. I, I'm just thankful. It's my, please forgive me and, and tell your marketing team this, I'm I'm a idiot for, for not figuring out how to get you on sooner it's been way, this has been a long time in coming. So tell them I'm terrible and not having done this sooner. This is outstanding. And this will not be the last time we talk. I hope 
we do this again soon. I also hope we do a project together sometime. I will be your assistant or your clerk. Uh, I just think it'd be so cool to collaborate on something with you down the road. So, well, this has been fantastic. And like I said, with the first time I, I talked to you, it was, uh, we, uh, I've been listening, uh, to your podcast for about a year, year and a half now. And the fact that I'm on it now is kind of, uh, it's, I don't want to say bucket list. I don't want to oversell it, but it's, it, it's pretty exciting. This is a definitely, a been a, a great experience for me as well. So I really appreciate it. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. I want to leave you with four questions before we part. Number one, in your business, how effectively is data being democratized across the organization, which includes data from marketing, sales, ops, finance, and other support functions. Number two, name two or three areas in your business where RPA or robotic process automation could be applied. And and Glenn even mentioned there are off-the-shelf tools that can help with RPA. Number three, assess your current ERP situation or your best to breed software stack. Is it effective or is it terrible or somewhere in between? And what are your next steps? Number four, similar to the RPA question, where could you apply machine learning in your company? If you work in logistics, retail staffing or manufacturing, you should have many ideas And if you're a consulting firm, where it may be a little bit harder, are there areas where you believe machine learning could be deployed with some of your clients or could help them? Again, I want to thank Glenn Hopper, his book, Deep Finance, Corporate Finance in the Information Age. And it's not just for CFOs either. Glenn, build your digital finance acumen in the areas of AI, computer science, and ERP. Hey, look him up on LinkedIn and connect with him. And I don't know his bandwidth because he does have a full-time job, but see if he come and speak at your company addressing some of the issues you have with the topics that we address. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.